Good afternoon. This is Air Brooklyn. Ben Piven here. Today we're in conversation with Caroline Waterlow, uh, along with some other neighbors of ours, Claudia Massa and Barbara Elovich. We'll be talking about OJ Made in America, the documentary that Caroline produced. Um, Ezra Edelman directed film about race, celebrity, criminal justice system, and the infamous trial that OJ was on um, quite a long time ago, but lots of issues that are still very relevant in 2017 America. Very fascinating film, and let's get started. So did you think you were going to win? We had no idea. There were a lot of, you know, articles and reviewers who were making predictions and were saying that we had a good shot, but you're told a lot, too, that, you know, it's the Academy and you never know what's going to happen and um, you just don't, you know, you just don't know. Um, I mean, you do, and you do a real kind of campaign, um, spend a lot of time in terms of getting the nomination. The nomination comes from the documentary branch, mm -hmm. so that's all documentary people. So they actually know what they're talking about. So they, and a lot of, and people that you may know or have worked with or, I mean, that's a sort of smaller world within a world and then once you're nominated, then it's a vote of the whole academy, mm -hmm. and that's six, about 6,000 people from all walks of life and all different um, parts of production. So it probably didn't hurt that my husband's an editor, and he had a lot of, mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of like friends who were rooting for us also. Um, he was voted for you. Right? He maybe voted for us. <laughs> right. I would assume so. The director lives in Fort Greene, and I live here, so okay. we're in our office oh, in Dumbo. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah. okay. Brooklyn-based project. Yeah, so we are definitely mm. a Brooklyn-based Brooklyn project, absolutely. So there's, I mean, all the producers and folks were from? Not all of them. One of the other producers lived in Brooklyn, but, but Ezra and I set up the company, and so we perp so we set up our office in Dumbo. Nice. Fort Greene. I'm in here, I'm here, so it's obviously like a convenient... Triangulation. Yeah, <laughs> location. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then we Did made Did you everybody. travel a lot for the interviews? I didn't travel as much. He traveled a lot, a few times, a few trips to Buffalo, and then, but just a ton of trips to L.A. I mean, most like Siberia, people. love that line. Yeah, like right. Going to Siberia. Being drafted to you Buffalo is be like being sent to Siberia. up there. What was Buffalo? He played for the Buffalo Bills. Bills. I don't know from football. And his that. first three seasons, he struggled. It was like He played primarily at USC, right? Um, he's from San Francisco. So there was a lot of West Coast travel. Ezra was traveling a lot, and I was sort of managing the team here. So the footage would get sent back, you know, and then you immediately have to, like, mm -hmm. get it to the editor. And um, so it was managing kind of the editing, overseeing, you know, that, and then all of our, you know, our researchers, the archival research, and then sort of figuring out, you know, who we were going to interview and then trying to coordinate. I mean, in order to save money, you know, you try to, if you're going to make a trip, you want to, knock out four interviews if you can, but trying to coordinate people to be, mm -hmm. you know, available when you need them to be and when some of the people are more high profile, when it's Marsha Clark or Barry Sheck or, you know, the, D, the assistant DA or something like that's, you know, those are harder things to coordinate, so there's always a little bit of a challenge. Is know. Marsha Clark bitter? No, like she thinks back on it and, and, and sees it for all of the sort of, there was Circus. so much, well, right. just that there was so much stuff going on, there were so many forces in play that they were not really attuned, they weren't really thinking about, you know, mm -hmm. she's trying to just prosecute a case, she sees it as a domestic violence case, that, and so she was perceiving it that way, and then, 
you know, but there's all this other stuff going on in terms of the city of LA and right. the film, which is a film obviously it tries to address. You know, this is like 40 years of history that's coming to a head, and <laughs> 50 right. years of history, mm. and right. so, you know, but when you're just focused on certain mm. facts at the time, I think they all just underestimated how, what a big mm. thing this, you know, what was going to be, and once you have the LAPD and. And they're notorious for being racist. Yeah, absolutely. And the person who found the key evidence gets on that stand and mm -hmm. has this kind of racist mm -hmm. language that he's used right. in his career and his past. That certainly didn't help. You know, I think we, we interviewed two jurors, and hearing their perspective wow. is really, really interesting. And what did they tell you? Two different... Well, it was a jury that was predominantly black women. Um, there were two women we interviewed who were on the jury, and you know, and they were of different generations. One of them was, I think, 20 at the time of the trial. Now she's in her 40s, mm -hmm. and and then another woman who was much older, and she was probably in her 40s at the time of the trial, and was older. And you know, so they had different experiences and different comments and different um, per ways of perceiving the evidence and perceiving mm -hmm. the case. But they ended up sort of in the same place with the way they voted, which is that they didn't feel the prosecution proved their case. Once you had, you know, shoddy handling of the DNA and racist cops at work, it sort of gave you reasonable doubt. And so I think, I think that, um, and one of the jurors says pretty blatantly, she thinks that it's payback. You know, it was for her, it was payback um, mm -hmm. for Rodney King and other yeah. cases that had well, led up to. I mean, Rodney King is the one everybody knows because it's right. on video, but there were many other cases many that other we cases. that we and we highlight a few of them in this in the film to show you that it was like just ongoing, right. relentless, yeah. <laughs> terrible well, treatment of the black community. So Caroline, just tell us how you became a part of this project. I knew the director, um, Ezra Edelman. We used to work together at HBO. He was a staff person at HBO. I came on uh, and worked on a documentary with him about 10 years ago about the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was really fun. That was a lot about Brooklyn history. And that Emmy up there. Right? That's and that Emmy, we, got, we won an Emmy for that. So he and I were colleagues and friends. ESPN approached Ezra to do the OJ thing, and he asked me to, to work with him. And it's helpful to have, I mean, for something so big and so intense, whatever, it definitely helps to have, you know, a long-term relationship that you... You know, someone who you trust and who you can, you know, be angry at each other and happy with each other through like it and stay friends at the end. I mean, yeah. we had a few moments where we're like, are we going to, is this going to, we're still going to be friends at the end of this? Um, just because it was really intense. And it was, I mean, we got it done, you know, just over a year, basically. I mean, we it was two years from the beginning to the delivery, but we had an amazing team. And everybody on the team was just really great at their job. The editors were great. We had an archival producer who was amazing and pulling in all that footage, and then another producer who was contacting a lot of the interviewees. So everybody was just amazing, and it kind of wor it just worked in a way that um, I feel proud of in terms of building the team and sort of knowing how to figure out. You know, it's always at the beginning of these things trying to figure out sort of what the workflow is going to be and who's responsible for what, and so much footage. I mean, we pulled in about 500 hours of archival material oh and then probably another 300 hours of our own stuff that we shot that was the interviews and scenic things and we had drone footage over LA and you know all of that kind of stuff so it's you're dealing with just under a thousand hours of material <laughs> you know so if you're not super organized it's just a nightmare the editor can't find what they need and how do you keep notes and stay organized with the architecture of the film when you have seven eight hundred a thousand hours and you're going to get down to seven it's really, really, really hard. As soon as you come back from an interview, you immediately start kind of dice, you know, cutting mm. it up and figuring out what are the bites. And, you know, and obviously it's a good director who, going into the interview, you know, knows what 
you're going for. I mean, there's definitely some kind of an outline you're working with in terms of knowing what you need Marsha Clark to talk about or knowing, but because we knew this film was really big and was going to cover a huge amount of time, what we wanted to do is bring characters in early so that you understand who these people are and then over the course of their entire relationship with OJ or their relationship with the LAPD or their relationship living in South Central or whatever it is, like you want to meet them a certain, you know, you might meet someone during the 92 riots, but then you're also, they're also going to play a role, you know, in the trial or in the investigation or the biggest thing too is that, you know, you're always paying the price of the sins of the prior media experience that that person had. Right, <laughs> so many right. of these people have had, you know, decades of terrible media experiences and treatment. I mean, certainly people who live through the trial, the lawyers affiliated with the trial, I mean, Marsha Clark never practiced law, really. <laughs> Even convincing people to participate, you know, it's like, oh, I've had, I've been interviewed a million times and it's always terrible and it's edited badly. And so you have to, you know, you spend a lot of time proving that you're not like everybody right, and you're right. smart and you want to, you know, you're promised that you're going to, you know, we want to do the story justice. And we're, and I think the fact that we, we were doing something that was so big made people see that it was a little bit different than, you know, it wasn't just a reductionist kind of, yeah, exactly. It wasn't just about the trial. And so... You have to do a fair amount of work about that, and then just really do your homework. I mean, all these people at the end of these interviews would say, like, wow, that's maybe the best interview that anybody's ever done with me about that, because Ezra would really do his homework. And so prepping for the interviews is just as much work as prepping to edit, really, mm -hmm. because it's like mm -hmm. you need to look at the footage that exists so that you can either ask people about it or remind them about things that they've maybe forgotten. So, you, ha you know, you have to really know how you're going to be able to connect the dots. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more, Caroline, about the opening scene in which O.J. is speaking with the parole board. What's some background behind that? What we're showing with that footage is that, you know, they're asking him questions about how he spends his time in jail, right. and then eventually they get to, what wage were you the first time you were arrested? Right. And he's confused and he's like, that what they're talking about is the murders, right. not the robbery that put right. him in jail. And so you see him Are we sort talking of, about this yeah. case now? <laughs> Yeah, so it's pretty strange. And it's funny because the, um, the prison, the Lovelock Correctional Facility in Nevada, uh, actually has a YouTube channel. Oh, my God. And the only video on their YouTube channel is that footage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Everybody wants to watch it. Which is, I it. guess, really strange. Yeah, so I don't know if they're going to, his next parole hearing maybe they'll put up. I don't know. But, um, but so we sent letters to OJ in the prison. And, um, and we never heard back. Oh, him. he didn't answer no, you. No. Or does he never we emailed and we I think we FedExed a letter to whoever is you know his social worker within the prison. Uh -huh. and we never heard anything back. We don't know if he's seen it. We don't know what he thinks about it. Really, the anniversary of the verdict was something that was quite interesting, and not so much the anniversary part, but reflecting on that verdict and the racial divide over the reactions to it, sure. right? And so I think that was actually a pretty interesting. In some ways, that was sort of the question we were trying to answer with right. the film, which is like, why did that? Why could people be so in such different worlds and sort of not really understanding? <laughs> this group of people were kind of happy about the outcome of that trial, which wasn't necessarily to say they were super happy about OJ specifically, but they were happy that an African-American man beat the system. And then there's all these white people who like apparently think justice is served all the time. <laughs> it was an interesting, um, so I think that racial divide over the reaction to the verdict was something that was very much the thinking about how to approach the story, which, as it turns out, is 50 years of history to sort of get you to this trial, and it, you know, so that maybe you see it and think of it in a different way. Kind of reduced, like, oh, it was a media circus, and oh, it was crazy, and, and that was the birth of reality television in some ways, right. and that was the beginning of 24-hour news coverage, it was the beginning of 
all these forensic shows. It was right, the beginning right. of all, you know, it was sort of like, it really is a turning point in terms of media. People were ready to sort of look at the trial again with new understanding and new information. And black and white audiences see the film differently and experience the film differently. And, but I think it's definitely, it seems to have started a lot of dialogue in terms of people saying like, you know what, I was upset that he, you know, at the time, but now I understand about the justice system and police oh, yeah. brutality and all of these things. And, and a lot of times people ask like, oh, with Black Lives Matter happening and all these things, like was that in your mind making the film? And of course it's in the ether of what we're all living in. This stuff's going on all the time. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's all, as you know, Ezra has said this in many interviews, like it's always a good time to talk about this because it's always happening. And so it isn't just like there was this weird moment where it's going on again, and it was going on then, and it's like, no, it's been going on, <laughs> you know. But yes, absolutely. In the way that when, in the wake of Rodney King, because all these things are now on video, and we're all connected through social media, and we're all watching on YouTube, and we're all, you know, these things were going on in L.A., but all these cities were so separate in a way. Right, it doesn't matter. Actually, Barry Sheck says that in the film. He's like, you know, he, he specifically says, you know, you rarely win a case against a cop even when it's on video, yeah. <laughs> it's rare, it's hard to get a con conviction. Going back to the racial stuff, what I'm kind of curious about is, so you think about OJ and you're like, okay, he's a black guy, and you think about how most white folks reacted, and there was this resentment that a jury of mostly black folks let him go, mm -hmm. and then you go through the history of OJ and his life and how he identified, and he said, I don't want to be treated as a black man, I want to be right. treated so as I'm not as black, OJ. I'm OJ. I'm yeah. OJ. Which is nuts. And, so and, and so, I, I think when you look at OJ, you see, okay, he's black, but he's fairly light-skinned, and you can see how, as he matured, he was able to sort of be in this kind of corporate environment and mm -hmm. being all the and living ads, in Brentwood and in Brentwood and he kind of assimilated into larger American society mm -hmm. um, and so it's just kind of curious how this mostly black jury ended up looking at him as a black yeah. man right. um, and white folks looked at him as one of that one of the other side even though this whole time he's been like he's kind of straddling sort of an inherent tension, you, you know it becomes this referendum on race mm -hmm. as a person who has kind of separated himself from race identity. Okay, you know, the sure. athletes who were activists, yes, you know, Muhammad Ali being yeah. number yeah. one yeah. example. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he lost yeah. his license yeah. at his height of his yeah. physical prowess and yeah. he was not, you know, able to box. But I'm sure there were a lot of people at that time who were like, he's crazy, he's gonna, mm. you know, they, they thought that, you know, he hurt himself financially for sure, he, you know. So OJ clearly, you know, when he's approached, he was like, no, I'm good. I'm not gonna boycott anything I'm not gonna do that's not what I want but he was still a pioneer in terms of being uh, a black spokesperson huge dream American right. companies right. being on TV in a way that there weren't when there were not a lot of black commentators social you know uh, ball commentators right. and, and he was in TV movies and, and the Hertz commercials and all that stuff he was a role model in that way yeah I think there's kind of this inherent weirdness to mm. the fact that um, he's tried as a black man, he's a black man on trial, but was a person who separated himself from race identity for a long, you know, in the black community. So there's that. But at the same time, I, I think he was a vessel for all these other issues. I don't think sure. it was really specifically about OJ per se. It was more like, hey, here's a really rich black man on trial who can actually pay to have amazing lawyers, which has My not God, been the case for most of the right. black defendants. And so it was kind of like, okay, and we have someone in the film, um, a woman who was a community activist, and she basically says, like, okay, let's see if justice works for him. Like, he's finally got amazing lawyers. And certainly Johnny Cochran is a person who's all of his history in, 
his career was prosecuting the police for police brutality cases, right. and he was the lawyer probably for police brutality cases. If OJ was going to commit a murder and go on trial for it, like there was no better time and place to do it than 1994 in Los Angeles, basically because of this Everything confluence of all of yeah. these things happening in terms of the legal representation he had, in terms of just after the 92 riots and Rodney King and all these other issues. And So I think in the end it sort of wasn't even about him specifically. Carolyn, where were you during the time of the trial? I know when I'm watching it was I'm watching the movie for the parts of it for the second time. You said it brought up a lot of conversation. My father Frank and I were talking, right. you know, like last night and I was going back and forth with my emotions again because in Buffalo OJ was a hero. Oh yeah, he was huge. And when this first happened, we yeah. were devastated. It was and I would it argue that Buffalo yeah. is still completely traumatized yeah, by it. There was just no way OJ could do this. Right. And then I as I watched the trial I started believing that he did do it, and I had friends, and they, you know, I was working through political activity um, with the African American community, and we got into all these conversations that you're talking about. And Frank, his response was, because I asked him, I said, "What did you think?" He said, "At the beginning, I swore, you know, he was, he wasn't guilty." He said, as the trial went on, he assumed that he was. He said, but he was glad when he got off because it was like, fuck you, we finally won. Yeah, won. exactly. <laughs> so, but where, where were you during the trial? What was I remember story? I was in college. I was When the murders happened and the Bronco chase happened, I was doing a summer internship in Washington, D.C. So I remember really well being in a household of like college kids watching the Bronco chase because you know, the Knicks were in the finals and basketball, and so that was going on. And for a lot of the trial, I, I studied abroad my junior year in college, uh -huh. so I was actually out of the country for a big part of it. But then in the fall when I came back and then the verdict happened, I was at school, I went to college in Atlanta. So I was in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was really interesting because I, I was actually taking an African American studies class mm -hmm. at the time. And I was definitely in a lot of situations where it was being discussed a lot and the verdict was, I mean, I remember sort of the reactions on campus. So I missed a lot of the trial, which is probably a good thing in terms of starting a project like this. I didn't mm -hmm. really go into it with you a lot have... of preconceived okay. sort of notions okay. or a very strong opinion. I'm mm -hmm. also kind of a conspiracy theorist at heart, so I always assume there's some corrupt power doing something bad to somebody. <laughs> like, right. So I'm, I was very open to thinking about and mm -hmm. reading about all the theories and all of did the cops place the evidence somewhere or manipulate the evidence. or So I was open to that. Okay. Um, yeah. It's so funny because when Marsha Clark, when she says during the arraignment and she said he looks he looked had guilt all over his face when I was watching it yesterday. Mm -hmm. I said, what are you talking about? I started yelling at the TV. I was like, I got the, the opposite reaction. So I'm wondering by the time I'm at the end of this movie, mm -hmm. if I'm going to be totally convinced again. <laughs> that he re I mean, not that it matters. He's, you know, but that he really wasn't guilty. I mean, mm -hmm. I almost wish they would come out with real facts to say that he wasn't guilty. You know, it's mine. It's just like the blood evidence is pretty to, compelling. What's that? The blood evidence yeah. is hard to yeah. get around. So yeah. up many times. Um, and, and that gets overlooked. And that made me well, the domestic violence part of the story yeah. gets very overlooked. It, get, it gets overlooked. Um, and I didn't realize that until I was watching it last night. And I was like, you yeah, and you know, it's this is an athlete. This is a really powerful, yeah, and physical, strong yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, and you realize, but I mean, I think for a lot of people, and jurors specifically said, like, look. He may have beaten her up, but that doesn't mean he killed her. That he killed her. And that, so it was compelling, but not, it, it didn't answer the question for a lot of people. Um, so, but yeah, it is certainly a sign of the times when you look back at that and you realize how much the domestic violence stuff isn't really, not people's primary focus. And, it you know, and the cops, yeah. I mean, the cops came to their house many, many times. They, 
She often didn't put, yeah, it was OJ. They were charmed by him. She often at the last minute would not want to press charges. You know, I mean, in terms of understanding the psychology of what it's like to live you know, as an abused person for a prolonged amount of time, there's obviously, there's like so much going on there. But it is kind of shocking when you look back at how little the domestic violence seemed to really, you know, it, well, it just was always considered this like private thing that went on behind closed doors and people didn't, you know, mess with it. it it's just, it's horrific because it still goes on today and he had been arrested for that. She might be alive today. Well, he was, a, he was... Charges were pressed like one time he was formally yeah. charged, and, he, and his punishment was like community service, and he organized a celebrity golf tournament. Uh, okay, or something. yeah, you did um, counseling instead. It yeah, might right, right. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's no, just it's, sad. it's yeah, no, it is. It's really and plus, sad. It's really whatever sad. the guy who. I mean, Ron clearly Ron. her first Goldman date, I mean, practically. Yeah, well, he didn't deserve to die. Not that yeah. she did either. No, absolutely, no. He was in the wrong, wrong place. time, wrong place. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's pretty unbelievable. But yeah, it, you do see, I mean, you do look back and notice. I mean, I also find the coverage of Marsha Clark from that time really sexist. It was very nasty. You know, she was always oh, yeah. the fall guy for everything. It was yeah. like, it's all I, like, I she's screwing it up and she's messing, you know. I mean, she and was the like, they covered Hillary, she was basically her hair. They talked about her hair. endlessly talking about her perms and her hair and like, did she get a makeover during the trial? <laughs> and she wasn't dressing as well at the mind. beginning and then she started to look better at the end. And yep. it's like, well, yeah, because she's on TV all day and you're scrutinizing her appearance right. constantly. Like, no one's talking about Johnny Cochran's gross tie or like very disheveled appearance or whatever you know it's like it's still yes and clearly things that were going wrong were sort of like oh it's the one you know it's the woman prosecutor and she had basically never lost a case right prior to that I mean she's a very successful very aggressive really smart good prosecutor she thought that domestic violence um, calls would figure more into it yeah and for whatever reason move people more I think um but what it's also the beginning of forensic evidence. I mean, that's yes. the other thing, is that the forensic evidence seems pretty compelling. There's blood, you know, there's literally blood. I mean, there's all three of their bloods mixed together in the car and right. all these places. You know, but it was the beginning of DNA. Right. It was like an unknown, yep. and the complication, that was Barry Sheck's thing that he really did. And, and he did a really successful job of showing that the, that the cops kind of mishandled, you know, right. really mishandled it. And so it became not the foolproof piece of evidence that you thought it was going to be. What's your takeaway personally from this? I mean, it sounds like you, like you said, your mind was really open-minded, but what did you learn through the whole I mean, I do think a lot of people have got to a place now where you can think he did it, but you can also be okay with the outcome of that trial. Mm-hmm. And I, that's sort of where I am, is mm-hmm. like, I understand the outcome of that trial, and I think it probably was the right outcome in the sense that the evidence wasn't foolproof enough and people, you know, the whole point is it's a jury of peers and people bring their own world experiences into a jury box and I mean I've sat on a criminal jury before for a couple of weeks nothing like what they did. I mean that's the other thing is people were, you know, living in a hotel for nine months. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which is unbelievable and people get really upset about the fact, you know, they deliberated for three hours basically and came up so quickly with the verdict and people have a problem with that and one of our jurors who we interviewed I think had a really good answer to it which is that she's like I was in a hotel room for 266 nights like what do you think I was doing Mm. I was you know the whole time I mean I didn't really need three more weeks of like you know so it's like oh yeah okay I mean I think people are I also think there's been a lot of racism towards the jury. You know, people will say, like, oh, is it true none of them has a high school diploma? And is it true none of them ever had science, never studied science? And is it true that... And I was like, 
why are you like why yeah, that is racist. like why are you saying that because it's a predominantly black jury like right, right. it's just so weird that people have said such horrible things about the jury and they sat there for nine months and listened to a lot of evidence so I you know I think there you have to at a certain point you know that's our system and that's what they that was their answer so I guess I feel like you can hold those two things to be true and okay you know and and I think that's acceptable now I've always done historical documentaries so I under I mean part of what I why I do them and why I like them and what I think their purpose is, is to show connections through time, you know, in a way that, you know, we're always living with this history around us and these biases that people have from their experiences right, right. and their, you know, so I think a good historical documentary will make these big connections between historic moments, rhetoric that's been used at different times and how it comes back into play. And I mean, there's one of my favorite things in the film is there are times when you hear people say, they'll literally say the same thing, but in different contexts. There was a police officer we interview who's making a comment about cops who beat up Rodney King. Mm -hmm. And he basically says, you know, they should never have been, he, he's very much a defender of the police officers and says, you know, they, that, sh that should never have been prosecuted. Those cops did the best they could at the time with the information they had at the time. And then the, the, one of the jurors, Carrie Bess, who's the older woman juror we interview, she basically says, he says, how did you come to your conclusion or whatever in the jury? And she's like, I don't know. I did the best I could with the information I had at the time. <laughs> she yeah, basically yeah, says yeah. the exact same yeah. thing. And it's interesting when you have the two black athletes who were at the 68 Olympics uh, in Mexico City, you know, who gave the power black power salute, yeah, and they're like ejected Tommy from the Olympics, Smith, yeah. right? Tommy Smith and John Carlos, and there was purpose to that. We talk about how the once the jury had made their verdict and they were being dismissed, there was a man on the jury, a black man on the jury, who gave the black power salute at the end, and that's really interesting, you know. And so, so it's mm. interesting to see yeah. how it's like these kinds of iconic images and moments in history mm. have these sort of repetitive themes. I think if you can show these connections through time, then you've sort of made a successful film in that way that all of these things, you know, are connected and come into play, and we're all living out all these different histories all the time. Well, it's interesting because this, I would argue that the OJ doc, you know, when people saw it last summer, very much the conversation was about race, and it was connected to a lot of Black Lives Matter things mm. that were happening in the world. And when you watch it now, post-Trump, <laughs> it's sort of taken on this other life with this other theme, which is like, yeah, you want to see how a narcissist comes to power? Like, right, watch right. this film. <laughs> because, you know, here's a guy who's, Donald Trump was actually really good looking on top of it all. Then it would be a whole other, like, right. nightmare because, you know, OJ's this really good looking, affable, yes. charming, sort of seductive guy. And he gets a pass for all of these things. And he gets a pass for the, for the domestic abuse. And everybody, you always see him on TV. And he was such a great football player. When, you know, so you Talks forgive him, charms yeah. his way through all these things. And, you, and we all kind of eat it up and sort of let him do it. And then he gets to this place and we're shocked. It's the exact same thing with Trump. It's like people think they know him because they watched him on The Apprentice. So it's the power of media to create these personalities. When someone has that kind of power, they get given a pass for all of their bad. Think about all the terrible things Trump has probably done business-wise, know. you know, throughout his career, and I he's know. given a pass because he has money, and he's got a certain kind of power, and he's got, and it's like, and then he ends up in this place, and we're all shocked, and it's like, we are complicit in the making of these people, and, and that's why the film's called Made in America, which is like, this not, OJ didn't do this by himself, no, like, we yeah, got yeah. him there. That's right, that's right, that's a very so, I think yeah. that the sort of, the power of celebrity and the narcissism stuff is, is a whole other theme in the film that was always there, but that right, people are right. now in tuned with in a different way. And we had a screening of it in um, Amsterdam, like a week after the election. Oh, wow. Which I was really nervous about because I thought, okay, well, they already like hate Americans anyway. And are they, you know, and I wasn't even sure how much people outside of the U.S. 
were connected to this story mm-hmm. and sort of knew much about who OJ was, and so I was really nervous about it. And it was actually really fascinating. People were really into it. They sat through the whole, you know, eight hours of it with two intermissions, and then they stayed, and we did like an hour-long Q&A. People were asking really smart, good questions. I mean, it was a documentary film festival, so it certainly attracts a certain kind of audience and viewer. There was like this incredible kind of camaraderie around the very sympathetic to like the Trump election. <laughs> I mean, I thought people were going to be sort of angry at us, but they were like, no, we've got our own crazy racist person who's trying to like take over power in the Netherlands, and they're and all of Europe has like this horrible pendulum yeah, swing going on. Like it's all over the world, and they yeah, were very, very like exciting. sympathetic and sort of. We felt like we were all fighting on the same team, which was really nice. I thought it would be. I, I didn't think they would feel that way, and people were like, "Oh, it's like it's happening everywhere, and it's terrible." And uh, all the films I've done are like heavily kind of archival and historic, usually in nature more than, say, purely verite kind of contemporary mm-hmm. stories. And I just got lucky in terms of working for a lot of good filmmakers who, who mentored me and took me under their wing and gave me some great experiences. And my husband's in film, and he's an editor, and which I was not really working in film when we first met. I mean, we met pretty young, and so we've ended up having these kind of, you know, working in similar worlds, and it's actually been really great and really cool and, and helpful. And it also impacts our lifestyle in general, so I think if you didn't get it or understand it, <laughs> it would be hard, I think. I've lived here for 20 years now. That's I moved really here. So I moved to New York right after college in, like, 96. But I'm originally, I was born in Canada from Montreal. I took out my birth certificate the other day and I was like, oh, just make sure it's all good. Like if I need to, if I need to go back. Exactly. Um, and then I moved around a lot growing up. My dad was, my parents are English, so we lived in England for a little while. Mm-hmm. We lived in Toronto, and then we actually lived in New York for two years. And then, and now my mom lives in. Uh, my dad got a job in Nashville, Tennessee, and then that's why I went to college in the South. So I have like a weird polyglot. But we moved to Brooklyn in 2003. We used to live in Hell's Kitchen before that, and. Way better. Yeah, much nicer. And um, although I loved Hell's Kitchen at that time, it's Hell's Kitchen's also changed a lot in that. I mean, it was still pretty gritty. And Wyatt had lived there for ten years before I before we got together. So checked out Brooklyn and loved it. And being close to multiple transportation options was really was really yeah. really important. Yeah. Because we change where we work all the time, so you can't really live anywhere that's convenient to work. You know, because it. it different post facilities and stuff so um so that was like a big selling point that it was like brooklyn but super close (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then working on that brooklyn dodgers film was really fun because it was a lot of brooklyn history that Mm -hmm. i didn't really know um so that was pretty fun it was not that was on hbo um only um, it's I great, actually. actually. I, well, I love the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's so, it's a really fun film. I have to say, it's funny though. Ezra and I, when we were working on OJ, like we would look back and be like, remember when like the biggest chore in our week was like to go interview a fan of the Dodgers? You know, and now it's like, get ready for Marsha Clark. <laughs> like in terms of just this, like how hard and complicated a project, and that film was seemed really hard at the time, but in terms of the subject matter, it was much it was not so kind of politically charged, you know. Yeah. Ball or strike, um, ball or strike, guilt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, but it was also, I mean, it was a lot of, you know, had a lot of race history as well. I mean, it was obviously mm-hmm. in terms of Jackie Robinson. Yeah. And talking about the fact that Brooklyn, I mean, we had several people talk about the fact that, like, could that racial barrier have been broken anywhere else? Mm. Probably, Probably not. not yeah. You know, I mean, Brooklyn was sort of made. I mean, partially it was right. Branch Rickey, you know, who brought him onto the right. team, and and then it was interesting because I, I also made a film by Roberto Clemente, who was oh. the first big Latino player, yeah. and that Branch Rickey left. I wasn't, but I, mean, I became a baseball are. person. Yes, I'm a baseball and now we're big Mets fans. Um, <laughs> That's a lost cause. Yeah. So <laughs> but I but I like the Mets because they're more homage to the Dodgers and the yeah, Giants, you know. Which is I wish I did. You know, that's why they're colors. I love that. It's like my favorite factoids. I love that. Right, the orange and the blue is 
was supposed yeah. to represent the Giants and the Dodgers yeah. when they left oh. after the, after they had left okay. you know New York. Oh. Yeah. 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 yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, the Giants were orange, the Dodgers were blue, and so, you know Shea was where it was was because that's where Robert Moses wanted it to go, which was using you know after the after the World's Fair had been in Queens, there was all that stuff there, so he wanted to reuse it. He felt it was the geographic sort of center of New York City and all that, and that's when the owners of the Dodgers like yeah we're the Brooklyn Dodgers, so if we're gonna be in Queens like we're leaving kind of. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my mom lives in Nashville, and it's I, it's hard for me to be in Tennessee at times. And it is very, very to do a documentary on how Trump got into office. Well, I, I know there's a couple of filmmakers trying to <laughs> to do that, and I well, and it's because it's come up a lot. But I keep saying I'm like, if it took eight hours to explain the OJ trial, like <laughs> it's going to take you like thirty to un- remotely understand this election, because it, again, it is. It's so many years. It's layers of history right. coming yes, together yes. in this the weird way. Back on tonight, in the, oh, is it? That's yeah. a, I think that's a really good wow. series, yeah. Because when you're in media, you you understand how much things that go on in the edit room and things, that, you know, you, you just understand how it's just always about creating a new narrative. It's been the longest two months of everybody's yeah. life ever. It's like, really? I can't, I'm, we're not going to survive a year, let alone yeah. four. Like, are you kidding me? It's just like... Thank you very much, Caroline. We're very lucky to have you speaking about what it was like to put together this Oscar-winning documentary on O.J. Simpson, fascinating film. It's also great to hear your take on various other political aspects of Trump and Brooklyn and some of your prior film experience. And uh, join us again on Air Brooklyn. This is Ben Piven, over and out. Ciao.